The scripture reading for today comes from Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We've been going through the series in Ephesians. I don't know if you've noticed, but like these first three chapters have been like getting shot in the face with a gospel fire hose, right? I mean, there's just so much gospel, so much grace, so much of our identity of, of who we're to stand in in Christ. Um, this new society being brought together of Jews and Gentiles to reflect the image of God. There's just so much in this. Next week, we begin our Advent series. I know that, that seems crazy that we're already into that season. The snow helps a little bit, though, doesn't it? But so we're going to take a break from Ephesians. This will be our last uh, message in the Ephesians series. And then in January, we'll come back to that after we're done with Advent and finish up the last three chapters. But what you see in these first, first three chapters is you have like all grace, all gospel. Then the next three chapters are like the application to it. It's almost like Paul is saying, okay, I've told you the gospel. So in light of that, that's how you act. We're going to get that in January, okay? But right now, we've been just shot in the face with a gospel fire hose. We're finishing up Ephesians 3 this morning with Paul. He's concluding this section with a prayer. So let's go to God in prayer as well. Father, we pray that you will illuminate your word this morning. And like Paul's prayer for the Christian church in Ephesians, that that you will just help us understand the mystery of the gospel, that we might understand the depth of your love for us, and that we might grow to be more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. One of the best ways that you can discover um, the passions and anxieties of a Christian is just to listen to their prayers. We usually pray for things that we're passionate about, don't we? If we have an anxiety, if something is really stressing us out, we're going to pray about it. If it's not a passion for us, it's not going to make our prayers, right? If we are really in a tough spot and feeling needy and passionate about something, the very posture of a Christian will change. There's been times in my life where I have literally been on my face, on the ground, like pounding the ground and begging for God to interject because I was so passionate about something that I wanted God to answer. When Paul prays this prayer that Stephanie just read a minute ago, he is feeling this kind of need. He is passionate about this prayer. And the reason we know this is because it says that he kneels before God. Look at this first verse in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He bows his knees before the Father. And I know this doesn't seem unusual for us. This seems like a normal kind of thing. Um, Maybe all of you don't pray kneeling down. Um, Probably a lot of you lay down in your beds while you're going to sleep and you fall asleep half mid-prayer. But in the culture of that day, 
to stand and pray was the normal thing to do. It wasn't normal to actually bow down and kneel before the Father. And you see this in Jesus when he's telling a parable about a prayer, and he says, you know, there's two people standing. Both people are standing. It was a normal thing in that culture to stand while you were praying. So really, the only time that you would get down and kneel is if you were desperate for something. We see this with Ezra when he confessed Israel's sins before God, that he kneeled down before God. We see this with Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he's kneeling before God and pleading to take this cup away from me. We see this with Stephen as he's about to be stoned to death, that he's kneeling before God as as Paul looked on. If you were desperate, you would kneel before God, and that's what we see Paul doing here. He's passionate, and he needs something, so he drops to his knees. Now, if Paul is, is needy, and I think of Paul as like a pretty strong and rooted guy, if he is this needy, I really want to know what he prays for. He prays for three things for the Christians in Ephesus. One, for them to have strength through the Spirit so Christ may dwell in their hearts. For them to be rooted and grounded in love and to know Christ's love. And for them to be filled with the fullness of God. So let's begin with that first one in verse 16. This first reason Paul desperately prays for the church is so God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Strengthened with power is the first thing that he prays for. Now what reasons do you think that Paul would pray for the church to be strengthened? Why would he feel like that would be a need that he needs to get down on his knees before the Father and pray for strength for this church? Well, the first thing is, is you know that the church is going to be persecuted, right? There was people that were being martyred for the name of Jesus, for witnessing to this gospel, for bringing the Gentiles into the scene like we saw last week. And Paul, I mean, when he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was the, the chief guy who was against this, that he, he was there when, when Stephen was martyred. He knew the church was being persecuted. They were putting it to death. So if anybody was going to pray for strength, it would be somebody like Paul because he knew that they were going to be persecuted. But it's not just being persecuted here. This rare word in the Greek for strengthening simply means to become strong. To become strong. Paul wants the church to become strong, and the sphere of this strengthening right here is at the core of who they are, in their inner being, he says. I want you to be strengthened with the Spirit's power in your inner being. The inner being refers to just the core of who we are, the very makeup of who we are as people. That is your inner being that Paul is praying for the Spirit to come in and strengthen you at that point. Earlier in the year, we preached through Luke, and we saw that Jesus was teaching in one spot of um, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. And we kind of have this idea that we can just have sin management and we'll just change the fruit at the end. We'll just constantly focus on our sin and we'll just change the fruit that comes out of that. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not what I want you to do. I don't want you to just continue to just change your behavior over and over again. You have to be changed at the core of who you are. If you become good on the outside, you will automatically produce good fruit on the outside. You need to change your core. This is the inner being that Paul is talking about. That needs to be changed in order so that we can bear good fruit. Our inner being. You probably heard us talk a lot about um, 
when we preach and even in our city groups that we confess sin. And um, it's not just meant to be a sin management kind of thing. It's not like, okay, um, I'm, I'm doing this thing out here. We always look further within because we try to find the root of the sin. Where is this sin stemming from? You cut out the root and then it, throw it away. Throw it away. But we're not about just sin management, changing behavior. It's about changing the core of who we are. We need to find the root of our sin, repent from that sin, literally removing it from our lives and then replacing it from truths of the gospel so that we might grow good fruit instead of bad fruit. Jesus is concerned with our inner being. That's what Paul's praying for. He's like, I want you to be strengthened in your inner being. Um, I know my own heart, and I know that the sin is in there, and I know the tendency for me is, is going to be that, that I'm just going to continue sin, and it's, it's so much easier just to fix the things that are on the outside, the things that people can see, to just focus on those like low-hanging brooches, uh, branches of, of bad fruit and just try to replace those. I know that um, I have a tendency to, to run and hide when I'm, when I'm sinning. But what Paul is asking, like, if, if we're not renewed and strengthened by the Spirit in our inner being, when we live in a place like Madison, I mean, we're just going to be crushed. We're going to be buried. We need the Spirit to come in and strengthen us within our inner being. Apparently, Paul knew this great need for the church to be strengthened as well. When Paul prays for the strengthening through the Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. There are two Greek words for dwelling, because uh, this is really why Paul is praying for us to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, is so that Christ may dwell within us. This dwelling, there's actually two Greek words for this. There's perikeo, which is the weaker form of dwelling, and it's used in Scripture to describe a stranger who inhabits a place. This is the word that Paul used a few weeks ago when we went through Ephesians 2. And in verse 19, uh, he describes a stranger and alien who lives far away from home. This is perikeo. This is kind of like um, a refugee camp. Uh, this is like transition housing. This is a temporary place to find residence. The other word for dwelling is katikeo, which means to settle down somewhere. And it refers to a permanent residence rather than a temporary one. And this is the word that Paul uses here to describe Christ dwelling within us. This is a permanent residence. This is Jesus making his home within our lives. Permanent, not a temporary dwelling. When Angela and I first started dating, and this was many, many, many years ago, um, Angela was like the center of my life for a while. And you might think, oh, that's, that's so romantic. She was the center of your life. It was not healthy in, in so many ways. Um, like, I had a surveillance team that would follow her around, and I put GPS under her. No, I didn't do that. Um, but there would really be times when I'd be, like, hanging out with my guy friends, and, like, we'd be playing a board game, and I'd be like, guys, I miss her. I'm going to leave. And they're like, dude, we're in the middle of a board game. You can't leave. I'm like, just divide up my properties, whatever we're playing between each other, and I'm going to go see Angela. I, I miss her. You probably use the word whipped for this, right? I, I, was, I was just whipped, and, and uh, my friends let me hear it all the time. But 
Angela was like the center of my universe for a while, and that's, that's just the way it was. Um, when Paul speaks this way, he's talking about our inner being. Whatever is at the center of your inner being is really going to control a lot of things in your life. Whatever is at the center is going to drive everything in your life. If you're trying to finish a degree in school, I know some of you are still in school. I mean, if that's at the center, every, every choice you make, how you spend your money, everything is going to be driven by that. I can't go out and, and hang out with my friends because I have to study. I have to get good grades. I have to finish this degree. I have to take lots of courses. I can't spend money on this because I have to invest in more classes so I can graduate. Right? Whatever is at the center of your being is going to drive a lot of that. And Paul prays that Christ might become the center of their lives as a church. That's what it's talking about. What Christ dwelling in your hearts is saying that Christ needs to become the absolute center of your being. At the core of who you are. It needs to drive everything. He needs to be heavily involved in your life and all the decisions that you make. How you spend your money, how you spend your time. Christ has to be at the center of this. Paul knows that if Christ not, is not at the center of this thing, this new society of both Gentiles and Jews and the persecution they're facing and, and their own sin and everything else that is involved with that, I mean, they're, they're just going to be goners. Paul prays for them to be strengthened in their inner being by the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts, that Christ may be the center of who they are. So Paul prays for the Holy Trinity, for the Father to strengthen us by the power of the Spirit so that Christ the Son may abide in our lives. I don't know about you guys, but I think we need this kind of prayer as well. I think we need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that Christ may become the center of our lives. We're going to flourish as a church and as a people. If we're going to see people come to know Jesus Christ and say like Madison, we need Christ to be at the center. Second thing that Paul prays for, that was the first petition. This is the second petition. Paul prays for them to be rooted and grounded in love so that they may have strength to comprehend the size of Christ's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. Paul uses two metaphors here. He uses an agriculture metaphor and an architectural metaphor, rooted and grounded. We used to live down in Daytona Beach for a few years, and at one of our favorite parks, um, Ange, what was that park called in Ormond Beach? It doesn't matter. What is it? No. All right. <laughs> Wrong answer. Just kidding. Um, there was this, this big park. Uh, it, was, it was heavily wooded, and they had one of the oldest and biggest live oak trees in the south. And this thing was absolutely amazing. They, they guessed that it was probably about 400 years old by now. And this thing had this huge canopy, and all these animals would come out. But the cool thing about it was is that it was so strong. It had these long branches that grew out, and they actually grew into the ground because they got so long that they couldn't be held up. And then they grew back out of the ground again, and then back into the ground. And they were just super long, and you could climb all over these things. And this was the coolest tree. But the thing about this tree is it survived so much. Think about Florida and, and hurricanes. Think about the heat fires, not only the fires from the heat, but also fires from um, lightning. I mean, they don't call it the lightning capital of the world for, for nothing. People actually 
vandalized it, tried to set this tree on fire at some point. I don't know why people do things like that. It had been during the Indian Wars, and a lot of this plantation around it had been destroyed because of these wars, and yet this tree stood strong. How could this tree possibly stand strong with all those elements of wind and hurricanes and fires and wars and vandalism? It's because it had strong roots. There's no way a tree can grow out like that unless it has strong roots. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not wear or does not fear when heat comes. For, it le- for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I love that because it's obvious that it's not talking about a tree there, right? It is not anxious. I don't know too many trees who are anxious when there's drought. But Paul recognizes the fact that if we're going to survive as a church, we need to be heavily rooted in something. We need to have strong roots. So that's the first metaphor is rooted. The second metaphor is foundation. I want you to think about a a house in this. A house must have a strong foundation if it's going to survive all of the things, the elements. Um, Even in Florida, you know, we had these hurricanes and strong winds that come in. You had to have a strong foundation or your house was going to be leveled. Anybody ever been down to the Sears Tower in Chicago? It's not called Sears Tower anymore. I'm old school. It's like Willis Tower now. Is that right? A few people. You can go all the way up in this observation deck. And this, if you go up to the top on a windy day, you can actually feel it swaying up to six inches. And I know that probably freaks a lot of you out. But the way it was constructed is they constructed it in a way that it could actually sway up to three feet in either direction if a strong wind came about. I don't really like heights, so that kind of, that freaks me out a little bit. But think about this for a second. If you're to have a building that is that tall, that could sway up to three feet in either direction in the windy city like Chicago, do you think that has to have a strong foundation? Yeah. Paul is saying that the church, if it's going to survive, has to have a strong foundation. These are almost like two of the same thing, being rooted and grounded. Almost the same thing. And I almost picture it like your body, like if your, your left leg is being rooted and your right leg is being grounded. But what is it being grounded in? That's the point of what Paul's talking about here. Look, look at this next part. To be rooted and grounded in love. Paul prays for deep roots and a strong foundation for the church. But however important these two are, the most important thing is the soil that they're built in, which is love. The Christian life will be strong if it's rooted and grounded in love. You know, as Christians, this is the most important thing about who we are. If, if we love people, um, Jesus says, you know, these are the two most important commands, that you love God and that you love one another. Not just love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, that's the love we're to have towards God. And the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Our love should be so radical and so different from everybody else in the world who does not know God that that love should absolutely affect every single person that we come in because we have experienced God's love. 
Seriously, if we have experienced the love of God, our love should be different than anybody else in the world who does not know God. Pastor John Stott comments on this passage, and he says, The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of these chapters, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. How do you know if you're rooted and grounded in love? It's by the way you love other people. It's a good inventory check. How am I loving other people well? If you're rooted and grounded in Christ, you will love others well. Um, Love begins with comprehending the size of Christ's love for us. This is where it's got to begin. It's not just being rooted and grounded in love. It is rooted and grounded in Christ's love. Scripture tells us that we love because he first loved us. Christ's love actually changes our hearts in order that we can love other people better. Love is the soil in which we dig our roots and build our foundations as the people of God. I love this because Paul says that we're to be rooted and grounded in love. Um, But then he prays for strength that we might comprehend the depths and the size of Christ's love. It doesn't seem like it should be that hard to figure out, but he prays for, that we be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, and then he prays that we might have the strength to comprehend how huge Christ's love is for us. We talked about the heights and the width and the broadness. You will, it surpasses knowledge. You will never understand the depths of Christ's love. That's how wonderful this is. A few weeks ago, we, we looked at um, the riches of, of God, and it said that they are unsearchable. That no matter how far you search into these things, you will never come to the end. And it says the same thing about Christ's love, that it is unknowable. That no matter how much you study Christ's love, you will not understand the full depths and the full impact that it might have on your life. That's how deep and how broad and how high and how wide his love is for us. So Paul prays for the Spirit to strengthen the Christians so that Christ may be the center of their lives and they might comprehend just how enormous God's love is for them. And then finally, in this last petition, Paul prays that the readers would be filled with the fullness of God. Verse 19, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. I probably didn't need to read that. I just said that. As the church, this new society in Jesus Christ, of both Jews and Gentiles, they would be filled with the Spirit. And although the church is already the fullness of God, Paul still prays for them to be filled with the fullness of God. Seems like an interesting dilemma there. Here's a little preview of what's to come. Ephesians 4:11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. He equips people in order that people might grow up into the fullness of Christ. But then verse 15, 
It says we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So it seems like on one hand, we need to grow up into Christ because we're still far away from that, right? This is our end goal, to grow up into Christ, to attain the fullness of Christ, become like Christ, to have the fullness of God. But then if you look at Paul's writing in Colossians in verse 119, he says, For in him, this is talking about Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then in Colossians 2, 9 through 10, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him. So in him, in Jesus, is the fullness of God. And this whole fullness of the deity dwells in Jesus, and you have been filled with Jesus already. And yet Paul prays for us to be filled with the fullness of God. It doesn't really make sense, right? Kind of seems like a contradiction. Why would Paul pray for us to be filled with the fullness of God if Christ is already the fullness of God and we are filled with Christ? Listen to this. This is really important. Paul prays this so that we might become who we already are. Paul prays that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Even though we're already filled with Christ, he prays this so that we might become who we already are. Think about Jesus. He was without sin he was perfect. We look at our lives and we say, not us, right? We're, we're so full of sin. We, we still rebel. That's why we confess all the time because our tendency is to continue to sin. But if we're going to grow up into the fullness of Christ, we need to become who we already are. I think about a, like a king who becomes king at a young age and he has this title of king, but yet he's not really acting as king. Or it's football season, like the starter gets hurt and the backup comes in. He's automatically like the leader of this offense, but sometimes it takes him a while to grow into the leader of this offense. When you are the fullness of Christ, you have the fullness of God in you already, but yet you need to grow up into what you already are. You are filled with God who is absolutely holy even though we're not holy, and you are filled with God who is absolutely perfect, even though we are not perfect. Yet in one sense, we already are. Because we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And Christ went to the cross, who was absolutely perfect, lived an absolute righteous life. So when God the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. He sees his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness upon us. That's who we are in the eyes of God. So to be filled with the fullness of God is just to live that out and become more like Christ, to become like who we already are because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Do you know who you are? You are a child of God. You are someone who has been saved from sin and brought into God's family. You are a child of God with an inheritance, with a hope. Your sin was deep enough that God had to come and die for you, but yet God loves you enough that he was happy to do it. That is who you are in God. You are filled with Christ. So let us become who we already are.
Paul prays for the church to be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit and experience the fact of Christ dwelling inside of them so that they might be filled with the fullness of God. He is praying that they might become all that God wants them to be, that they might become all they were created to be, that they might become who they already are. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. We are being transformed into the image of Christ is because that's who we already are. We are the image of Christ, Christ in this world. Let me conclude with this. This prayer, um, these three petitions that Paul goes through is kind of sandwiched in between some pretty powerful indicatives. Verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth has been named, that according to the riches of his glory, and then he prays his petition. I love this. He's bowing and praying to the Father from whom every family on heaven and on earth has been named. This just really shows the intimacy of God, that God isn't just some God that's, that's up there in heaven and ignores us, and he, he's so powerful that he could do anything that he wants, but he's so far above us that he, he can't possibly interject. You know, we, we, we sometimes think that our, that our prayers are, are too big for God, that he can't possibly come down and answer that. But God is powerful enough to do that, and he's intimate enough and with us that he loves us and he knows us and he names us. That's the family of God that we are. And it says, according to his riches. I mean, we already looked at that last week. It's like his riches are unsearchable. He's going to answer our prayers according to his riches? Unsearchable. You know, we compared it to the ocean. It's, it's like you, you could explore the ocean for the rest of your life and you'll never understand how big and how broad and deep it is. And that is God's riches for you. He can answer our prayers according to his riches, which is endless. He can never find the end of his riches. And then on the other end of it, the other side of the sandwich, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more than all we ask or think. I love that. You think you can out-ask God? Man, my, my prayer is just too big for you, God. I, I don't think you can answer this. So I'm not even going to bother you. I, I know you're busy with everything else that you're doing up in heaven, and you probably have bigger things to pray about, but this thing I have right here is so huge, I'm not going to come to you. He is able to do far more than we ask or imagine. We cannot outdream God. You pray for something, he can do far more than that. He can do far more than the best thing that you could dream up. Doesn't mean that he will, but he could if he wanted to. It's within his will, in his sovereignty, God can do more than we ask or imagine. And I just, go ahead, try to dream something up. Try to go beyond God with that. Try to go to God in something in prayer that you just think is going to be impossible. Go to God and pray that and see what happens. This is the God Paul prays to. His riches are unsearchable. His love is beyond our understanding, and he could do more than we ask or we dream.
Man, I don't know about you, but it makes me feel pretty good when I go to God in prayer, knowing those three things right there. Paul finds it necessary to passionately pray for the church's growth. I find this so interesting because this is a church that was planted by the Apostle Paul. It's somebody we'd probably put up like way up there. You know, you got Jesus up here, but Apostle Paul is probably like, you know, second person down. Church planted by Paul, strengthened by him, visited by him, letters written to him, and yet Paul passionately prays for their spiritual growth because he knows that they need it. If they're going to survive as a church, they need to grow. They need to be rooted. They need to be strengthened by the Spirit. They need all these things that Paul's praying for. If they have the Apostle Paul, just apply this to our own lives for a second. How much more do we need to pray something like this? How much more do we need to be strengthened by the Spirit? So this is my prayer for us today. So may we be strengthened by the Spirit in our inner being so that Christ becomes our center. May we be rooted and grounded in love and understanding how great Christ's love is for us. And may we be filled with the fullness of God so that we might become who we already are in Christ Jesus. So let's go to God and pray. Father, we, we ask that you strengthen us with your Spirit. I don't know everything that people are dealing with in here. You know, maybe they're, they're already facing persecution from family. Um, that they have members in their family that just think that this whole Christian thing is just foolish. They don't understand what it's all about. Maybe somebody in their workplace that is trying to quiet them in their talk of speaking about these riches that come from you. I don't know about the sin that people are struggling with, but we can guarantee that, that if we are following you, that if we are living out what you've called us to, if we are growing and becoming more like Christ, that we are going to be tempted by sin, that we are going to be faced with persecution, Lord. And I ask that you strengthen us by your spirit, that Christ may be the center of who we are. But Father, as we grow out of this, we ask that we might understand the depths of your love for us. Help us understand the amazing uh, depth of your gospel so that we might be overwhelmed in our heart and love just might flow from who we are because you have loved us first. Father, help us not to just love each other, but to love this world as well. So we ask that you strengthen us and you might send us into this world so that other people might know the riches of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.